Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Hugo Frey, the author of Nationalism and the Cinema in France, Political Mythologies and Film Events, 1945 to 1995. And the book was published by Bergan Books in 2014. Hi there, Hugo. Hi, good afternoon, good morning. Hello, Vancouver. (laughs) Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking. And it's very kind that you're interested in uh, this book that uh, I brought out last year and took up six to eight years of uh, my life in one way or the other. So thank you. Well, I'm excited to be able to speak with you about it. I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France and French cinema. Okay, I guess uh, I had no idea that I would ever become an academic, but I was always interested in uh, European, Western European life and culture and was always a big uh, fan of France. Basically, this was because my grandmother lived in Switzerland and most of my family holidays involved going to northern Switzerland, which as a kid was fun, but generally the journey to the relatives through France was was more fun than the actual arrival <laughs> in Switzerland, which was a little bit conservative compared to what I was used to in the UK. And then also when you're uh, thrown into the other family, you get uh, funneled to one relative and another, whereas when I was in the France part, that, that was more like the holiday mm-hmm. uh, or, va- sorry, vacation. Elements. That was one element that made me interested in France. So I travelled through France every year from uh, being a baby to 16. Mm -hmm. And then also my English grandfather actually took part in the D-Day landings and was sadly uh, killed in the liberation. And so my -hmm. grandfather is buried in France. And hence that was the other angle and a kind of family interest in Mm-hmm. Uh, Anglo-French affairs. So that's the the personal side. Having said all of that, I never imagined that I'd ever become an academic. And then when I read for my history and English degree, I was taught by a very encouraging 19th century specialist called Sharif Gemi, mm-hmm. who is a specialist in 19th century anarchism and was a kind and supportive teacher and encouraged me to go on an exchange. So I spent six months in Poitiers when I was 19. And then on my master's and PhD, which just kind of worked out that way, I was also uh, supported by a scholar called Chris Flood, who we might mention again. In the interview, Chris was working on a book to do with political communication and French politics and also the far right. I, at the time, was interested in the first accounts of resistance, uh, not in film at all, but in early history books and memoirs. And the cinema? The, The cinema, I suppose, I just always loved film and I guess partly doing cultural history with Sharif, we looked at 19th century novels. And so I was interested in how non-traditional historical sources could be used to study France and and other places. 
and I guess after doing the PhD, looking at uh, texts, so mainly uh, history books, memoirs, and biographies, I wanted to do something different that was more to do with visual material. Mm. And since I always loved film, uh, I thought that film would be uh, the thing. And I wrote a book about Louis Mal, mm -hmm. who, who was a kind of logical stage between looking at history, writing and film. Mal, as you and uh, listeners will know, made two very important history films. Uh, Lacan Lucienne, the first film about a collaborator in 74, and then Au revoir les enfants uh, in the late 80s about his uh, memories of the occupation and the raid on his school. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for a new project uh, after Louis Mal and I did lots of shorter things still to do with history writing. And then eventually I had this idea that a lot of people talked about national cinema to mean a kind of total culture of cinema. And I was more interested in looking at how cinema could uh, pursue and distribute ideas that were more clearly nationalist, mm -hmm. nationalistic and sort of on the extreme end, xenophobic, but also nationalistic in a kind of more promotional kind of way, rather than just a description of oh, these happen to be Irish films or these happen to be Danish films or mm -hmm. this is the French kind of community of films. Uh, my angle that I thought at the time hadn't really been discussed that much was to do with the kind of mesh of cinema and a more kind of strident uh, form of nationalism than just a kind of label for a category of films made in a particular place. So that's a very long-winded explanation of the many fa the many factors that led me to a, a project called uh, Nationalism in the Cinema in France. So Hugo, the book covers the period from 1945 to 1995. So what can you tell us about these bookends? I mean, the end of the Second World War is the perhaps more obvious one. Um, what do these dates mean with respect to French cinema and nationalism? Yeah, the 45 point was essentially I am more of a specialist in post-war France. Mm -hmm. And uh, given that I hadn't done a PhD in French film studies or French cinema history, I'm much more confident on the kind of contextual material for the post-war years, particularly originally the, the 50s and 60s. But then with working on Mal through to the, the 70s and 80s, the other end that, that made sense around 95 is this is the centenary of, I hope I've got this right, check, check the dates in the book that, as I was saying earlier mm. before we started, I have a very bad memory these days, <laughs> particularly paranoid with getting dates wrong as I work in a history department. <laughs> and so, yes, it is 1995 right. that is the official centenary of the birth of cinema that is in France. So that was a logical uh, concluding point. Also, equally, uh, there are tensions around some of the topics that I write about, and ultimately, I'm not a film studies person. I'm a historian in this book, and 1995 is now approximately, it is 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I was writing it, researching it with a, a kind of 18-year gap, 
because some of the issues that I talk about may have some sensitivities for real people in France and Mm -hmm. then maybe even more sensitivities for for colleagues in the field who are not doing history but doing uh, film studies more generally. So it felt like a sensible gap. And then I guess to some extent, some of the topics that I talk about are more pronounced in the period, particularly 45 to the early 90s, and that uh, maybe despite nationalism still being very significant in France, maybe with generational change, uh, there is certainly a kind of different kinds of nationalism post uh, Mm -hmm. the retirement of uh, Chirac, Mitterrand previously, also Jean-Marie Le Pen, father. So there is a kind of different kind of nationalism, uh, maybe in the later period to the more recent times that I'm an interested in observer in, but I'm not a not a kind of researcher on. Um, the book Hugo emphasizes two ideas that are embedded in its subtitle: the notion of a political mythology or political mythologies, and the film event. So could you elaborate on what these two concepts mean and how you're using them throughout the book? Yes, I'll I'll try and do my best uh, without becoming too technical. So I think that the the primary aim of the book is to was to write a new history of post-war cinema that got to a level of detail that I wasn't familiar with in some of the other good books that I was reading. So a lot of good books have been written about post-war French cinema that lead students of French culture to sort of introduce them to major films, major trends in cinema. But because of the reading I was doing as a historian, I always felt that there was more to say, both about the content of some of the films and then also particularly to do with how the films functioned in French society, how they became... Uh, points of discussion in newspapers or literally on the extreme uh, end of response to have cinemas attacked uh, by people who didn't like the, the contents of the films that were being shown. So my primary aim was to try and gather all of this information together using uh, fairly traditional methods of a historian, identifying the films that were the most nationalistic uh, maybe discovering directors who've not been discussed as much. Mm-hmm. So uh, an actor who becomes a director, famous actor Gerard Blaine, becomes a director. And Blaine's films, you could argue, have a, a certain right-wing anarchist uh, nuance to them by, by the 80s. So I had no idea at the beginning of the project that Gerard Blaine would become a, a key example. Mm-hmm. So I had certain people who I assumed would be examples because of uh, their fame or, or notoriety. So that's the primary project, was to uncover who, who really were the most nationalist and how did it affect things and when did film become a kind of central point in a kind of assertion of French national pride or French xenophobia. Mm -hmm. Now, the way into looking at that, apart from uh, gathering all of this empirical archival data, films, people, reviews, uh, film festivals, discussions and debates, was that the two framing categories that help bring the book together, primarily for, I think, an equal status. One of them a little better known than the other. So we'll deal with the the better known approach first, which is political mythologies. Mm -hmm. So 
by that, when people talk about political mythology and the, the scholar who, who supervised my PhD, who I mentioned earlier, Chris Flood, wrote a, a book about political myth nearly 20 years ago. That's a very good book. Um, essentially, he means, and generally people mean, it's where a story is communicated and that the story can be fictional or real, uh, doesn't really matter. The narrative is offering something to people that communicates political values. So myth as a kind of concept originates in discussion of theology and so-called sacred myths, sacred stories to do with worlds of religion. But the term political myth is meant to describe more secular stories that communicate uh, values and that the person communicating them probably knows what the values they are, but intentions are always difficult to to discuss. But certainly the audience that sees them, even subliminally or or listens to the stories, they understand the kind of value or meaning of the story. Uh, The other book, that in the background that, that I was talking to, to students about and that, that Chris encouraged me to read back in the 90s is by famous literary scholar Susan Suleiman, uh, who wrote a book about interwar novels and how the French novel can communicate political values. So I was interested in saying, is the content of the film, are the stories of these films giving us some kind of value that's nationalistic. The famous example that people had discussed already uh, is to some extent the cinema of Jacques Tati. So Mm -hmm. Jacques Tati, very famous uh, filmmaker, much loved, highly influential around uh, the world of uh, comedy. Uh, Besides all of the comedy, Tati's character, usually the kind of everyman uh, French uh, character who he plays himself, he is thrown into this post-war world where French tradition seems to be being, to some extent, undermined by uh, modernization and maybe by implication, American culture uh, visiting France. So, uh, famous film Mon Oncle uh, describes Tati's world as the traditional French village, almost unchanged, mm-hmm. uh, market square, uh, he being a kind of affable, kindly character, and then his relative's family uh, in the hypermodernist, uh, awful kind of flat that's just across the other side of town. And there's a wonderful cut at the beginning of the film where the old-fashioned Frenchman, Tati, suddenly is walking to his relatives and he walks suddenly out of the camera and then he's in a kind of wasteland where first there are terrible tower blocks and then after the tower blocks are kind of posher, uh, modernist estate. So doing a rough discussion of those films in the light of political myth, you could say that, of course, they're funny and, of course, Tati's a brilliant comedian, but they also carry a kind of implicit value around old world France, a rural life, mm-hmm. family, uh, friendship, community versus maybe the kind of colder, uh, brutal uh, modernism of, of post-war uh, modernization, particularly in, in the film that he made after that called Playtime. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Tati in the world of the ultra-modern hotel, where the modern hotel is a kind of symbol of a world where everything is the same. And there's this moment in it that's very poignant, very touching. I'm 
I'm not a Frenchman, so I'm not a French nationalist, but I find it poignant and touching. The visitors arrive, and all that they see of Paris is a reflection of the Eiffel Tower mm. in the uh, windows of this kind of skyscraper, every world, global hotel complex. So that's a story, a kind of political myth of a, maybe a loss of a golden age of mm-hmm. French life with a kind of supplement of uh, modern tower blocks, uh, modernism by implication America, changing all of that society. So what I was interested in trying to do in this very long first part of an answer is to explain that those are the kind of, I was trying to find other stories that captured a kind of form, different forms of nationalism. Mm-hmm. So it was how do the films communicate a story that has an implied political value around either the greatness of France or the importance of France uh, or maybe about what kind of people are really the so-called true French and what kind of people are maybe excluded from uh, a kind of nationalist vision of uh, kind of core French society. And maybe if you could just give us a sort of a brief, well, I know you're exploring this notion throughout the book, but just kind of before we get into it in any detail, this, the idea of the film event and how you're yep. using that. Well, the film event is the other side of the equation. So the film myths are more about the content of the film. So then I was interested in exploring how the films were received because mm-hmm. in all of the reviews that I was reading and the other material, it always seemed that there were lots of things going on after films had got released that relatively rarely uh, got written about. Of course, there are very good books by people, but they don't always cover the mi- kind of minutiae of what happens to a film when it gets launched into society. And so I'm using the term film event uh, that a French historian called Mark Ferrow first used, but didn't really, to my knowledge yet, develop very much to describe when a film is doing something in society more more than just reflecting a kind of image, but literally having some kind of agency to change or affect uh, the way people behave in a society. The classic example that Pharaoh mentions is the famous war film, The Sorrow and the Pity, mm. Chagrin et la Pitié, which clearly has an effect on how the French read the experience of the occupation. The uh, concept as it's used in my book is, is much uh, more widely, actually widely developed than uh, Pharaoh had time for in the original article. And so there are different types of events. Uh, one type of event is where a film provokes quite extreme responses or debates. So two films get discussed in the book uh, that do that in the post-war period. The uh, famous film about the uh, independence movement in Algeria Bataille de l'Alger, Battle of Algiers, mm-hmm. by Italian filmmaker Pontecorvo, provokes on and off many, many uh, public responses uh, from attempts to censor and ban the film mm-hmm. through to demonstrations, uh, intimidation of films, uh, intimidation of cinema screening the film. Uh, that's the one example that's Possibly not so well. It's a famous film, but it's not so well known about its reception in France. The other kind of violent film event uh, reflects a particularly hardline 
response to Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're extreme film events. There's another film event that's quite extreme in the book is the story of a veteran filmmaker, uh, Claude Orton Lara, who in the late 80s becomes a Front National uh, European politician. And here the Front National essentially use uh, his election as the oldest member of the European Parliament to generate a essentially a political scandal to try and uh, attract attention. So mm-hmm. those are kind of extreme reception events. There are other more uh, everyday reception events in some ways where reviewers latch on to a particular theme in a film. And generally speaking, a more left of centre reviewer will criticise a film with more right-wing values and then a more right-wing reviewer, vice versa. And then slowly the story of the film uh, stops and the story becomes about how the reviewers and their kind of intellectual uh, supporters end up discussing the uh, meaning of the film. But, of course, they're not ever only discussing the meaning of the film. They're also discussing the meaning of the film in French society at the time, whether or not the film is positive or negative around the government of the day. So classic example of that is the uh, film Danton uh, from the early 80s that the French socialists had hoped would be to some extent uh, a film in favour of the Republic. The film is made in a context of Cold War, is made by Vaya to criticise uh, Poland and then, of course, when the film was released and turns out not to be a celebration of the French Revolution, the conservative opposition to then uh, socialist government can uh, have great fun uh, mocking uh, the socialists. So right. that's a, a much softer type of film event, but it does give you an example of how cinema doesn't, particularly in this period, doesn't just stop uh, when the moment the film is, is made. The film kind of develops a, a further life where real people go and watch the film and then have these uh, so-called real-life responses. The first uh, chapter of the book, Hugo, focuses on films that are about film in the post-war period, and, and you examine what you call the what you refer to as the patriotic subtext of these meta-films. So I wonder if you could just explain this notion of the cinema of self-promotion that you're working with uh, in, in this chapter and, and at other points in the book, and maybe just give us one example from the films you discuss along these lines. Okay, yeah, no, it was, uh, I was essentially looking for what I was talking about, these political myths, so where were films carrying stories that added value to a, a national a national ideology, I suppose, and it struck me that one of the more subtle examples was this kind of standard claim that I'm sure listeners will probably all agree with, actually, doesn't matter if it's true or false, is that France is a country where great cinema can be made and that there are wonderful French filmmakers and that somehow by implication cinema is a kind of high-quality product that mm-hmm. reflects that reflects positively uh, on a self-perception of the French. Uh, and then I thought well, I was trying to think about it further and understand so how come we all believe that the French are these great filmmakers. <laughs> I mean, of course, some of them are, and we know about the new wave, and there are serious, important contributions of 
uh, French uh, French people to the development of the history of cinema. But it can't only be based on that. And then suddenly I realised that that some of the films that I'd watched before, or that I particularly actually enjoyed, were in this genre of film uh, about films about films themselves. And the first and probably best known example is Truffaut's La Nuit Américaine, mm-hmm. Night for Day, which I had to admit I hadn't seen when I'd started the book now, uh, yeah, nearly 10 years ago. And you watch Night for Day. And of course, it's it's a very subtle film. It's, it's co-produced, I think, by US Studio, has an international cast, and to some extent is just a celebration of the chaos and wonder of bringing people together to make a film and then the film's over and they go their separate ways. So that's perfectly good way of reading the film. But also when you kind of unpack it a bit more slowly, the fact that the film is made in the French studios, the fact that Truffaut plays himself uh, as a kind of glamorized filmmaker who makes sure everything is correct. Slowly you unpack and see that this is a, a funny film, a little bit like a Woody Allen film. It's also a film about international cinema, but it's also a film that, that literally there's this confidence of Truffaut to make a film that, that says French cinema is great. Here's a film about French cinema in, a, in an international context. It's also very much a reply to uh, Godard's uh, that day uh, early 70s Godard by then is making exceptionally critical films about French about cinema and media from his kind of radical leftist position and to some extent Truffaut is is also engaged in this film event kind of response Mm -hmm. to uh, Godard's uh, far more critical films famously Le Mepri from early in the 60s is a highly critical meta film critical of the American film producer who comes and ruins the uh, French scriptwriter's life. These are all terrible simplifications. And <laughs> I know from uh, readers, both, uh, both readers who, who read the book uh, anonymously and then maybe <laughs> reviewing it, saying that I simplify all these things. I'm not trying to simplify French cinema. I'm just saying that if you apply a kind of close political reading, you can read them in, in these ways. Mm-hmm. In the second chapter of the book, Hugo, you focus on the cinema's engagement with French history as a way of expressing this desire for and, and even forging a kind of national unity. And so how did the how did French films of the post-war period look back to, to the more recent history of Vichy and the resistance, but also to the longer term history of France going back, well, at least to the revolution of 1789? Yeah, this was probably the hardest chapter to write mm-hmm. because in some ways it was the most connected to my previous research and it's always difficult to go back sure. over things. The other reason that made it difficult to explore is that it was uh, the problem I discovered as I was writing it is that essentially while there's an extreme desire for uh, French intellectuals, filmmakers, historians, politicians to celebrate the past, there is almost zero consensus over what a glorious French past would look like. So I think I called the chapter The Search for... Oh, let's just check <laughs> what I did call it. Uh, the Search for National Unity Through History. And to some extent, that's a title that I borrowed from a, a historian called Stefan Berger, who, who wrote a book about German history called The Search for Normality. And mm. 
So post-war Germany maybe is looking for some kind of world that's different from those legacies of Nazism and the Holocaust, kind of normal world. For, for me, the, the French were not looking for a normal world. They're looking for uh, stories about the past that show that they're all united. But as soon as one version of that unity is created, by implication, the left or right is marginalized because of the splits of the revolution, the splits of 1870, the splits of Dreyfus affair before, after that, the splits of uh, 1940. France is kind of politically divided through these historic events. And so whenever you try and do a representation of history, you're likely to offend somebody. And yet there's this paradoxical desire for, for unity. So it's actually very difficult to... It's, it's far easier to explain in those general terms and far more difficult to write about mm-hmm. in, uh, in, a, in a textual form. So uh, I guess the, the cinema of the French resistance is the notable example of a, a brief period of time, 45 to maybe 1968, where a generally speaking positive vision of the resistance fulfills that wish for unity. But when you look at the reception of the films and the variety of the films, uh, even the sto- even the stories of the French resistance have emphases that are either uh, leaning towards a French communist type of resistance or leaning towards uh, maybe a more uh, Gaullist type of resistance. So the story of history in French cinema is in political terms, this search for a narrative that pulls everybody together, but because of the prejudices of a filmmaker and the necessity to edit a film, that unity will never be found, and then there'll be critical uh, after effects. Would you say that this chapter, um, you know, how is it in conversation with what you know historians of the post-war period might be familiar with in terms of a, a Vichy syndrome? Like, does the historical film of this period you know, going into, well, at least the seventies, I guess, can we understand it all, all of this production in terms of a Vichy syndrome, even the films that go back, reach back to a, a longer term history? Yeah, that's a, a difficult question mm. that, that hovered over the writing of the chapter. <laughs> to some extent, I, uh, the Vichy syndrome has hovered over my <laughs> entire life since 1994 or five. And yeah. so I didn't want to make the chapter a kind of repeat of the Vichy syndrome. Sure. And to some extent, uh, the more detailed work of Sylvie Linda Perk, mm-hmm. who I must pronounce correctly does probably inform the chapter more than the Vichy syndrome interpretation. Linda, let's make sure I do get her name absolutely right. Yeah, Linda Perk. Sylvie Linda Perk is the leading historian of uh, French resistance film. (laughs) And her major work that came out shortly after the book called The Vichy Syndrome, like me, kind of ignores the Vichy syndrome as a kind of concept and says, let's look at these films and what is the resistance cinema about. And her book, which is a a brilliant work, unfortunately not translated into English, Mm. essentially points out that, yes, there are a lot of resistance films, but they don't form this kind of total block Mm -hmm. of this is one glorification of the resistance. 
Uh, instead, there's always a tension over what should be in the films, and there's always a variety of perspectives uh, that capture different types of resistance. And often different resistance fighters are unhappy with the end results of the film. Mm-hmm. So Sylvie Lindeberg's work is is very good on all of that and interesting. And also an English historian who was interested in discussing these things with me and who's written very good academic articles is Karen Adler. Uh, Karen Adler's work is essentially pointing to the fact that the actual visual content is often far more complex than this kind of model of Mm-hmm. things being forgotten and then things being remembered. Mm-hmm. One of the parts of the book I found most fascinating, Hugo, is your analysis of the 1966 Claude Lelouch film, um, A Man and a Woman. And this analysis of it as a film event and a work of nationalist cinema, which is not something I thought of the film as uh, previously. So you read the film as an example of the the representation of a modern chic France. And I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the film and how you are looking at it differently because you're looking at it within the context of a discussion of nationalism. Yeah, again, I was looking for where cinema was producing positive images of uh, France that the post-war country could be proud of. And so I was looking for examples of films that somehow captured the impression that maybe we all have of uh, French people as French modern society as being particularly chic, dynamic, uh, exciting, maybe a little bit romantic. And there are famous examples, obviously, of New Wave film and the New Wave being a, a promotion of French cinema, so particularly around uh, the iconic status of Brigitte Bardot and her kind of status as an icon of uh, a modern uh, sexy France that was uh, moving forward into the post-war world and actually, a little paradoxically, completely different from that world glorified in the Jacques Tati uh, films. So as I was researching, I thought I'd seen an Armain femme a long time ago completely uh, for leisure reasons and it struck me that it'd be worth looking at Lelouch and as I was researching it, it became apparent that while An Homme and Femme became a very famous film, much loved in France and around the world and screened globally as a romance, essentially the reception of Lelouch's film in France itself was an example of one of these film events, particularly a more soft, could be called a soft film event, in that critics of the left uh, disliked An Homme and Femme because they felt it didn't have the political content of other new wave films, particularly by then uh, Goddard's films, and that it was a the softest, last variant, a kind of uh, a loss of the politics of some of the new wave film. And equally at the time, the film comes out three or four years after de Gaulle has asserted his power in France and the end of the war of decolonization in Algeria. And by the mid-60s, de Gaulle is trying to build a a modern France and is astute to the potential of cinema as a a flagship for French culture, I think. Uh, Particularly Malraux is also in Minister of uh, Culture. Mm -hmm. Paris is, is tidied up. There's a rebuilding. 
And it transpires that when you research these things, Lelouch uh, was picked up on by de Gaulle. De Gaulle uh, had a private screening uh, of a, an Armean femme. Lelouch writes about this in his, his memoirs published years later. Mm. And the film becomes uh, highly criticised by the left as a kind of soft film that doesn't really deal with anything political, but just shows these two people uh, driving across France and then eventually maybe falling in love. But then the right really uh, enjoyed the film, <laughs> particularly on the grounds that it uh, captured modern French people doing quite dramatic and important things, but then equally having a relatively chaste uh, love affair and if you uh, look at the images of the fam and Ormond fam these are completely different to the perhaps far more challenging images of earlier in the new wave where Bardo, Jean Moreau uh, much more kind of overtly uh, sexualized. it's a kind of uh, narrative that tidies up uh, the, the problematic love triangles of things like Jules uh, Jim. Uh, so ladies mm-hmm. wearing fur coat and not wearing a bikini and <laughs> then uh, the husband is not alive and somehow happy to be involved in all of these things but the, the husband is, is dead and uh, so it's the widow looking for the new husband mm-hmm. which fulfills a, a much more positive uh, kind of agenda from a, uh, a national Catholic ethics. Another thing you sort of take another look at in the book is this theme of um, anti-Americanism in, in French history, particularly in the post-war period, something that uh, listeners might be familiar with. And you talk about a tension between the, the sort of rhetoric and uh, discourse of uh, anti-Americanism in post-war France and the actual content of post-war French film productions uh, with respect to images of America and Hollywood and borrowings and and references to to American cinema. So could you say a little bit more about that? Okay, yeah, no, this was another particularly difficult chapter to write. The the chapters that went uh, well and that I found easy to write were were the meta films, the films about films, and actually the modern chic people. Mm -hmm. But the the history one and the anti-Americanism one were a challenge. Again, the anti-Americanism one was, was difficult because on the one hand, uh, there are these famous examples of French filmmakers, the French film industry defending itself against uh, a perceived American uh, Hollywood challenge and invasion of Hollywood films. This is particularly marked in uh, the immediate post-war years, 46 to 48, around a, a new trade agreement that uh, French filmmakers are worried that having not received American films during the occupation – Hundreds of uh, Hollywood films made in the 40s will suddenly be dumped into French cinemas and French screens will be taken over by Hollywood. This is again comes up on and off around issues to do with language purity, but then also to do with the world trade reforms around 1993. Uh, fairly famous, so in my living memory, as it were, we have these disputes around Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And will will films of the Jurassic Park, Spielberg, big high uh, tech films, will they be the films that come and ultimately, quote unquote, invade France? So I was thinking, okay, so there's all these filmmakers worried about the invasion of cinema, and yet when we actually look for a film 
French film that's critical of uh, America in this period, it's actually very hard. The, there are almost no films that capture that particular anxiety. The one film that does capture that anxiety is uh, Godard's Le Mepri, mm. uh Contempt, where we literally have this monster of a, an American filmmaker uh, coming to torment a uh, French scriptwriter and take away Brigitte Bardot. <laughs> right. him. So that's, that, that example uh, fits quite well. But otherwise, there are just smaller traces. Uh, uh, maybe things that are meant to be just humorous. So there's a very famous uh, Truffaut film where the Truffaut character, protégé, Antoine Douanel film where Douanel finds a uh, a job working for an American corporation, and uh, very amusingly, the job that he gets is to is to drive the little model boat around the corporate headquarters pond, and so the corporate headquarters this is horrible building, and then poor uh, Douanel is just sent out into the park to drive around this pathetic little boat to uh, show off to visitors. So there are just glimpses of anxiety around America. More often in the films, there is admiration, uh, pastiche, obviously film noir is a big link between American film and and French film. Gangster films, uh, admiration for American gangster films, French gangster films. The content is far more ambiguous, and yet from time to time you get these uh, very important public demonstrations that uh, French cinema must not become uh, either invaded or contaminated by uh, US products. The role of um, the loss of empire and the role that cinema played in this era of decolonizations um, also also uh, features in the book. And um, I'm just wondering, I have a couple of questions along those lines. How did the cinema portray and or shape French attitudes about colonial sites and colonized peoples in this period? And how did the cinema contribute to maybe a persistent notion of French civilization as superior in the face of, of imperial decline? How do you deal with those, those issues in the, in the book? Yeah, no, that, that's a, it's an important part of the book that uh, could merit, I mean, almost every chapter one could write a separate book on, mm-hmm. which uh, is probably the thing I should have done at the beginning. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, this one certainly does, and and there are good things about uh, colonial and post-colonial film. But essentially uh, what was interesting is that particularly B-movie action films continue right up until the mid to late 80s to develop action and adventure stories where, generally speaking, French male lead characters, often played by Belmondo, sometimes Delon, sometimes other people, find themselves in a uh, tropical, possibly post-colonial country, uh, fighting uh, criminals and so forth. And so there's a whole spectrum of these Neo, what I call neo-colonial action films, that some of which you can tell uh, the content from the titles. The the films, interestingly, almost get worse right up until a kind of crescendo point in the 1980s, where uh, we get one or two late 80s films or mid to late 80s films that have 
essentially racist content where all of the villains are Afri- corrupt African leaders. All of the good guys are betrayed uh, French secret agents. So uh, I'd seen some uh, some of these films were famous in the 80s with Delon and Belmondo and so vague memories of seeing posters of them and uh, when I was a teenager I bought film magazines in France although I couldn't fully read them I was interested in the pictures and so I had some vague memories of this and then of course more recently we have uh, fairly famous satirical films that capture the genre and make uh, fun of it the, the two films recently that satirise this are the films called OSS 117, mm-hmm. Cairo, Nest of Spies, and then the very over-the-top uh, OSS 117, Rio ne répond plus, no reply from Rio. And they capture something that was also, I'm sure, evident in British action films, probably also evident to some extent in Westerns and American action movies, of the 50s to 80s that with our now uh, multicultural values, post-colonial values, almost right up until the, the there's a, well, it's a strange turning point in that the films almost get worse in terms of their political content and then suddenly by the late 80s the, the genre is burnt out, maybe people are not going to watch them anymore, values have changed and those films stop. The other element to the story is a is a series of more serious melodramas that are the beginning of what sometimes gets labelled the colonial heritage film. Mm. So we have some uh, heritage films that capture a historical view of French imperialism in a glamorous fashion. And then we have some military war films that are more serious war films that offer a, a kind of defensive depiction of the the French wars of decolonization. I should recommend one example of each type. So probably the first heritage film in French of a colonial type is a a film by a Swiss filmmaker called Daniel Schmidt called Hecat. That's from 82. We also have a, not a heritage film, but a a popular melodrama called L'État Sauvage that isn't intended to be uh, colonialist, but, but has traces of that, also from the early 80s. And then the, the serious military films are pursued by one filmmaker called Pierre Schoendorfer, who mm. uh, is famous for making a series of uh, essentially defensive accounts of the wars of decolonization. Mm-hmm. The last two chapters of the book, Hugo, focus on anti-Semitism and the extreme right. How do you get at the role of anti-Semitism and foreign right nationalism in these chapters? And, you know, what, if any, lessons do you think the analysis here might offer for thinking about contemporary uh, cultural struggles over over some of these questions? Yeah, it's now we get into uh, tougher, tougher territory Mm -hmm. in, in some respects. So I think that Broadly speaking, the chapter on neo-colonialism reveals essentially a very late post-colonial culture. So I think uh, in the current discussions, and we're talking in spring 2015, the current discussions around a notion of a republic that is very firm 
and uh, defensive around its core values. I think it's it's difficult to not want a more elastic form of multiculturalism that acknowledges more fully the errors of the republic as a as a colonial state. I talk about the the repression of Battle of Algiers. So we we tend to think of the other side of the Mediterranean as the uh, as the place where all the violence, irrational behaviour occurs. My book shows that through the seventies, films that said anything really critical about the French in Algeria were not made, and when they were made by other people, uh, cinemas were attacked. Mm. So there's highly emotive. And I guess the next su- sub point is that there are highly emotive identity issues about what it means to be French. Mm-hmm. And they're held on the side of uh, French nationalists, and they're also held on the side of French multiculturalists. So I suppose point one is we have to realise we're in a very early post-colonial context in terms of what I think we might call general attitudes. Mm -hmm. And then point two, there are emotive issues and emotive reactions, uh, and these are not limited to uh, Africa, Israel, uh, no zone out of France is necessarily more emotive than uh, things in France itself. Mm-hmm. The point around anti-Semitism and the far right is when we look for films that are anti-Semitic in France, the the tradition is strongest in the pre-Vichy period in the 30s to obviously... The high point or low point, obviously, is is the propagandistic films under Vichy itself. And because of the return of the resistance, the liberation, the broad success of de Gaulle, in terms of visual material, uh, anti-Semitic material in film, is, is less evident in the post-war years. Having said that, there is a backdrop of anti-Semitic interpretation and value occurring, so some of the early critiques of Hollywood film from the left include uh, critiques that uh, characterise Leon Blum in a, in a fashion uh, relatively similar, comparatively similar to right-wing attacks uh, made against Blum uh, in the earlier period. So there is a attempted shift away from a kind of public anti-Semitism in terms of film culture. If we think about it as an example, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl is not making films in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. It's about her reorientation, German case. Having said that, there are subtexts of anti-Semitism in some of the responses to the films. And equally, there are occasionally moments where what might be called a, a trivialization of identity politics uh, takes place and so uh, filmmaker Michel Odiar is a, a popular filmmaker making films in the 50s to 80s and from time to time he adopts a position close to the anti-Semitic writer uh, Louis Ferdinand Céline around the grounds that he will say whatever he likes and that he's got his particular vision of France and uh, will express these offensive uh, remarks again generally more in press interviews than in actual film layered into that by the 1980s 
we have the rise of the Front National. And of course, the rise of the Front National reopens a space for a uh, more openly uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic uh, discourse. And as I said at the beginning of the discussions, a, a, a retired filmmaker, Orton Lara, by the late 80s becomes a candidate for the Front National and his reputation as a filmmaker becomes mixed up with his expression of both anti-American and anti-Semitic remarks. I guess what's important to remember historically from this period is that ultimately the prejudice of anti-immigration and anti-Semitism go together, whereas the current anxieties uh, relate to obviously the new post-9-11 context where I think French-Jewish security concerns are, are primarily concerned with uh, terror attacks and not concerned with with what might be called kind of far-right neo-Nazi prejudice. Final comment, the current situation is clearly turbulent and mm. a sense of anxiety of France becoming a site for civil war does lend itself to pre-existing right-wing narratives uh, about France being a victim of invasion, a victim of kind of recolonization from the, the former colonies. Mm. And none of the, uh, I, I have to admit that I've been traveling and not monitoring or living in France recently, but the current events seem to be supportive of, of, uh, of a now reformed Marine Le Pen uh, type of discourse. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's evidence in contemporary French cinema of some of the, like, are there legacies of the material that you're looking at in this book and the themes that you're looking at in this book? I'm just trying to think of what French films I've seen recently and what's popular in France. And I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but you're the, the expert. So is, do you think there's that this nationalism that you're tracking in the book, what life does it have beyond 1995, if any? I think that the interesting thing, despite the last question and the kind of point by point answer, <laughs> is that to some extent things still, um, not famous for being optimistic, but to some extent things have uh, improved. I think there is a generational change uh, post-1995 and that in terms of on-screen and uh, public uh, discussions around film, mm -hmm. there is a kind of tacit recognition that elements of French cinema held some stereotypical views and that we're living in a, in a different world where globalization means that uh, countries have to be more integrated, uh, transportation, movement of peoples, the internet. To some extent, all of these things, I do think, despite the rise of continued rise of the Front National, I think underneath, maybe I'm talking more about Britain than France, underneath there is a kind of difference in terms of the visual images, the stereotyping, perceptions around French masculinity, French femininity, etc., etc. I think there is a shift and that the kind of stereotypes that I look at in the book couldn't be uh, made so much in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. You do get occasional protests against uh, films uh, that portray uh, the Algerian war in a way that some on the far right are not, uh, do not find uh, acceptable. Mm -hmm. But I was mentioning the satirical uh, films, the OSS 117 films. 
that's a kind of marker that they are making fun of their own nationalist film heritage, mm-hmm. which it's one interesting example of that. A lot of the time that that is not occurring at all. And a lot of the time, older filmmakers are still seen as icons of a French quality cinema. So, uh, really, we're talking about people like Renoir, uh, Pagnol, mm-hmm. now more recently Truffaut himself. These people are, of course, they're, they're looked at critically, they're read very intelligently, they're discussed brilliantly, but also they've become sites of a kind of French film heritage mm-hmm. that must be reassuring uh, in that it provides some kind of anchor uh, in these kind of periods of greater uncertainty. So I just have one last question for you, Hugo, which is what are you working on now? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I do fair. know rough, uh, too, too many different things would be the, the, the short answer. In in the kind of interim period where, where this book was going through its uh, journey to publication, uh, my other interest is uh, was French comic strips, uh, Bon Dessiné, mm-hmm. and to write a more general account of Bon Dessiné stroke graphic novel. I have actually spent three to four years roughly on and off working on uh, American graphic novels because mm-hmm. to talk more generally about the graphic novel and for a, a world audience uh the French bande dessinée is not so central on curriculum in English language universities, US, UK, Canada. And so while bande dessinée, Hergé, Asterix, uh, other traditions leading, of course, to, to, to some of the satirical cartoons that we've been talking about in the news currently, uh, these things are in the study of the graphic novel, but to write a full text about the graphic novel i have become a briefly for a three to four year period a kind of american literary Hmm. historian which is now nearly finished and so i'm trying to it is finished the book about the graphic novel that i wrote with belgian colleague jan batens is is out and not so much directed to french uh, readership but for people interested in Mm-hmm. American graphic novels and of course some crossover over the political issues in, in famous graphic novels like Art Spiegelman's Mouse right. issues of representation and history uh, that is now finished and, and was literally uh, published in December mm. and January and now I am thinking about maybe something to do with the new wave but I have some interim Uh, projects to do with graphic novels to finish Mm -hmm. before I can get back to to French cinema. Well, I'll look forward to hearing more about it as as that project develops. I just want to thank you, Hugo, for taking the time to speak with me and for for writing this terrific book. No, thank you. It's incredibly kind that you found the book and and, and read it and uh, asked me very difficult questions that I hope I've answered relatively well and not offended anybody. Thanks so much.